Samuel, thanks ladies. <coughs> Let's turn to Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 22. <coughs> Genesis 22 this morning. Genesis 22 and <coughs> let's read from verse 1 as we begin. So then it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thy only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and claved the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. <clears throat> and Isaac spake unto Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand, and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven, and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou any thing unto him, for now I know that thou fearest God. Seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Let's open with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we... Thank you, Lord, once again for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather around your word this morning. We pray that you bless our time as we <clears throat> consider this uh, well-known event, well-known story. pray that you would teach us this morning, instruct us through your word. Lord, may we leave singing your praises and giving glory to your name. I pray, Lord, that you would empower me now through the Spirit, that it would be your words, it would be your thoughts this morning and that you will be honoured and glorified in everything we do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now in Genesis 21, if you remember, was where we saw God finally blessed Abraham and Sarah with their son Isaac, the long-awaited promised seed. And we talked about the wonderful joy that it brought to their lives. <clears throat> but of course that was immediately followed by the consequences of past sin. You know, that because he'd sinned with Hagar and he had Ishmael, that past sin came back to haunt him. There was consequences that came. And so 
Ishmael and Hagar had to be sent forth by Abraham at the instruction of the Lord. And the chapter 21 ends with Abraham <coughs> then dwelling in the southern region of Canaan for a number of years. He, he agrees a treaty with Abimelech and he continues to live there. Let's just go and read that. <coughs> chapter 21 and verse 32. <coughs> it says, Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech rose up and Bichal... Uh, the chief captain of, the ho- of his host, and they returned into the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba and called there in the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the, land, uh, sorry, the Philistines' land many days. <clears throat> so the end of 21, uh, chapter 21, Abraham is still living in the southern region of Canaan. He's living near Be- Beersheba, okay, which is in the land of the Philistines, and it says there in verse 34 that he sojourned in the, the Philistines' land many days. Now, the word days there is used to indicate many years, okay? So it's many years that he continues in this place, in the region of uh, the, the Philistines' land, okay? Beersheba, that area. Now, exactly how many years he lives in this southern region, we cannot be sure, but we know that he's still in that region in Genesis 22, Okay, he's still there when these events take place. And we know that because of verse 19, Genesis 22, verse 19. It says, So Abraham returned unto his young men, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. So after this event takes place, he goes back to Beersheba. He goes back to the southern region of Canaan. So he's still living there when this all takes place. And we cannot be sure exactly of the date of this event, but verse 1 of chapter 22 begins with the words, it says, and it came to pass after these things. Now the inference of that is that it's after the many days of verse 34 in chapter 21. Okay, so we have these many days, these many years go by, and after these things, after that, this comes to pass. And so the point is that Isaac, by the time this takes place in Genesis 22, Isaac is not a child anymore. Isaac is at least a young man, he's in his teens, but it's quite possible that Isaac is even around 30 years old by the time this event takes place. You see, the next reference to time or chronology in the book of Genesis is in chapter 23, and it's the death of Sarah. Just turn over there, chapter 23, verse 1. It says, And Sarah was sorry, 107 and 20 years old, these were the years of the life of Sarah. And so the next reference to time or chronology is Sarah's death at 127 years old. Now, she was 90 when Isaac was born. She was uh, 90 when he was born. And so when, when she dies, Isaac is 37 years old, isn't he? Okay, he's 37. And so we know that this event in chapter 22 takes place between his weaning, age 3, and his mother's death, age Thirty-seven. It's somewhere in there. But it's closer to her death. It's, it's closer to the end. It's after a number of years this takes place. Now, most people, you might sit there and think, well, why do most people assume he's a young child? He's a, he's a young boy. And that's because of verse 5 and verse 12, isn't it? Okay, read verse 5 with me in chapter 22. It says, And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And then in verse 12 again it says, And he said, Lay not 
thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. It's because of this translation, the word lad, that we assume he's a young boy. You see, the word translated lad here is actually very flexible in its meaning. And most frequently in the word of God, it's translated either as servant or as young man. And we see this translation in verse 5. Read verse 5 again with me. It says, And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the, with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. The young men there at the start of the verse, that's the exact same Hebrew word. There's no difference. It's the same Hebrew word that's translated lad in that verse. So we have it translated two different ways in the same verse. Translated as young men and translated as lad. The point is, it would seem better to understand it as a young man, referring to Isaac as well. Translate it the same way. Okay, It's the servants who are young men and Isaac is a young man when this takes place. Indeed, most scholars, you know, Usher, all those ones who do chronology and do all the timelines and all that, most scholars estimate his age to be between 23 to 26. That's where most land, that that's where he was. The Jews, most Jews uh, in their commentaries as well, it's the same thing, around 23, 26, even up to 30 years old. And so I guess my point is we need to banish from our minds that image in Sunday school of the father and his young son walking up to Mount Moriah. It's Isaac is a 30-year-old man with his father on this, on this trip, on this journey. He's an adult as this takes place. And so a lot of years have gone by, haven't they? Between chapter 21 and chapter 22, a lot of years have taken place. You know, they've watched Isaac grow into a, a young man. They've, they've spent some happy years in that place. It's a time of peace, a time of great enjoyment, a time of great blessing for the family. And it's at the end of that time of great blessing that they're now faced with their greatest test. And it's that great test that I want us to consider both in this service and the next service this morning. This test that takes place here in Genesis chapter 22. And so first of all here this morning we see God's instruction. God's instructions. Look there in verse 1. It said, It came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham And said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thy only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Here we see the Lord now once again speak to his servant Abraham, and he gives him these uh, instructions for him to follow. Now, we've seen this before. We've seen the Lord appear to Abraham and talk to him and give him some instructions, some directions. But these ones, of course, are very different, aren't they? They're very hard. They're difficult instructions. And it would seem that this is the first time that Abraham has heard from the Lord directly since chapter 21 in verse 12. Okay, this is the last time the Lord spoke to him, chapter 21, verse 12. And God said unto Abraham, Let not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad, And because of thy bondwoman, in all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice. For in Isaac shall thy seed be called, and also the son of the bondwoman will I make a a nation, because he is thy seed. So the last time the Lord spoke to him directly was concerning Ishmael, and how he was to send Ishmael 
forth with Hagar. And so if Isaac is indeed now in his 20s, some 20 odd years has gone past without the Lord speaking directly to him, at least the scriptures don't record any direct revelation. And God now breaks his silence and he he issues these very difficult instructions unto Abraham. Instructions that really seem to be completely out of character with the God that he knew, the God that he loved, the God that he, he served and worshipped. They seem to contradict everything that God has been promising under him over these many years that he's followed the Lord. Now, Isaac was the promised heir. God had declared very clearly that it was through Isaac the promises would be fulfilled. Through him, God would make a great nation. In chapter 21, verse 12, God said, In Isaac shall thy seed be called. God made it very clear. He said, Isaac is the promised seed. And through him, all these promises, all these things, the covenant, it will all be fulfilled through Isaac and his descendants. And so these seem to be very difficult instructions, don't they? Because the Lord suddenly now comes and he says, all right, I want you to offer your son as an offering unto me. It seems to be completely out of character, doesn't it? With God completely contradictory to everything God has said before this. You know, we can only imagine how this must have hurt Abraham to hear these words. You know, put yourself in Abraham's shoes for a moment, as the Lord says this to him in verse 2, and he said, Take now thy son, thy only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. These are difficult words, aren't they? They must have hurt Abraham to hear these things. You see, everything the Lord says here, it seems almost to be calculated to cause him anguish and distress. Everything the Lord says here, he says, take your son, your only son, the son you love, and put him to death as a burnt offering unto me. It seems to almost be the Lord's trying to cause him anguish. The Lord's trying to uh, cause him distress. You know, being human like us, we can only assume that Abraham had a very restless night's sleep. You know, I'm sure he didn't sleep at all that night. As he pondered these instructions from the Lord, you know, he must have sat there all night questioning, why is God asking me to do this? What's the point of this request? What's the point of these instructions? You know, Abraham, we've got to remember, Abraham's living in a time when pagan nations are offering their children as sacrifices to their gods. They're false gods. And so Abraham has witnessed the pagan nations doing this. And now the God that he serves, the God he loves, is asking him to do what seems to be the same thing. And this is completely out of character for the God that he knows, the God he loves. Now his God is not like the false gods of the pagan nations. And so why is God giving him these very difficult instructions? What is the reason for it all? You know, for Abraham, there were no answers. You realize that? For Abraham, on that night, you know, here's the instructions from the Lord, and he is restless all night wondering what's going on. There's no answers from the Lord. The Lord doesn't tell him why this is all happening. The Lord doesn't give him any insight, any knowledge of what it's all about. Abraham simply has to accept the words of the Lord and he has to step out by faith and obey the command of God. 
knowing that God has never failed him in the past, and therefore God won't fail him in the future. He simply has to accept that God knows best and obey. And that's what we see in verse 3. We see that he rose up early and he obeys the Lord. It says, And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. This is exactly what he does. With, with no answers from the Lord, no insight into what it's all about, Abraham rises up early the next morning and he obeys the Lord. You know, while Abraham is not given any answers, while Abraham is not given any reason for these instructions, we have the privilege of knowing why, don't we? You see, we're in a different position. We, we can read the whole story. We can read the whole event. And we have the scriptures to shed light upon why God is doing this. And so Abraham may not have known. He may not have known the reason for the instructions. But we can find the reason as we look into the word of God. The passage before us sheds light on God's purpose. And in particular, there are two words that appear here for the very first time in the scriptures And they're significant to helping us understand God's purpose or God's reason for these instructions, both in relation to Abraham and then also in relation to the whole of Scripture, the whole of God's Word. And the first of these words is the word tempt. So if you're following the outline this morning, we've got two sub-points now. God's instructions and the word tempt. Okay. Here in verse 1 it says, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. And he said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. We're told here in verse 1, God did tempt Abraham. Now this is the very first time you will find this word tempt in the scriptures. This word translated here as tempt. And it's important that we understand its meaning, isn't it? It's important we understand how it's used for the very first time in the Scriptures and what is the the purpose of this this word in relation to this event. You see, often when we read the word tempt, we immediately put it with evil, don't we? We think of tempt, we think of evil, we think of sin. We connect them all together. You know, James makes it clear to us that God cannot be tempted to evil and God doesn't tempt us to evil. Let's just turn there and read that verse. I know we know it, but James chapter 1. James 1 verse 13 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. And so it says here quite clearly that God cannot tempt man to evil. God is holy. God cannot tempt us to evil. And so it's clear that this is not the meaning here. When it says God did tempt Abraham, it's not talking about evil, is it? He's not tempting him to do wickedness, to do sin. The word tempt here actually means to test or try. And most times in the Word of God, it's translated prove. Prove. And so really in verse 1 here, what we read is God did prove Abraham. He proved his servants. What exactly does it mean for God to prove Abraham? Well, we can look to the New Testament and we see a similar idea in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
who we know could never be tempted to sin. Turn to Matthew chapter 4 with me. <clears throat> Matthew 4. We know this passage well. This is where he's taken in the wilderness. Matthew 4. And verse 1. Matthew 4 verse 1 says, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Okay, it talks about the Lord Jesus Christ being tempted by the devil, tested, tried, proved. In Hebrews 4, verse 15, a similar idea. Turn over there, Hebrews 4. <clears throat> Another verse we are very familiar with, Hebrews 4, verse 15. <clears throat> Hebrews 4, verse 15 says, For we have not a high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He's tempted in all points like as we are, tested, he was tried. In both these passages, it's the same idea. Christ could never have sinned, and so we're not talking about that. But Christ was proved, he was tested, wasn't he? He was proved that he could not sin. Okay, he's proved, he was tested. The commentator Morris explains it well. He says, Christ was approved, or proved, so that everyone could see that in spite of the greatest tests to which he could conceivably be subjected, he would stand spotless and blameless. The engineer may know full well that his design will stand the stress and strain to which it is subjected because he knows that he has designed it properly. Nevertheless, the construction specifications will require that it be tested, not to assure the engineer, but to assure the public that it will stand. You see, that's really the idea here. Okay, with Christ, Christ was proved, he was tested, so that all might see that he is who he claimed to be. Okay, so we might see that he is indeed the eternal Son of God, that he is the perfect, sinless Lamb of God. And it's the same idea with Abraham. God is proving Abraham to reveal his character for all to see, to reveal to Abraham himself his character, his heart, but also to reveal to all around, and indeed to us, as we look into the Scriptures, it reveals to us His heart, doesn't it? It reveals to us His character. You see, God already knew exactly how Abraham was going to respond. Have you thought about that before? God already knew how Abraham would respond, because God is God, and He knew Abraham's heart. But this test, this proving here, revealed His heart for all to see. This testing would highlight that Abraham loved God more than anything else, even his own son. And you know, God had been preparing Abraham for this test too, hadn't he? It's not as if this just suddenly came upon Abraham. God had been preparing him for this. Every step of the way through his life, God has been preparing him. From the day that he called him out of the, the land of Ur. God has been preparing him. God has been molding him. God has been strengthening Abraham's faith. Now we've seen God, as we've gone through the book of Genesis, we've seen God testing Abraham, you know, increasing his faith, testing his patience, teaching him to have patience. Now there have been times, of course, where Abraham's failed too, hasn't he? Now there's been times when he's been impatient, when he has lacked faith, he's made mistakes. But even with each of these, he has learned his lesson and he's been strengthening his faith so that he might go forward for the Lord. And the point is that by the time this event takes place, 
By the time God now comes and God proves his servant here with this most difficult request, and it is a very difficult request. By the time God does this, God knew how his servant would respond. God had, God had tried and tested him. God had moved him. God had strengthened him to the point where he was ready to face this test and God reveals his heart through this proving, this testing. And beloved, God will likewise tempt us. He will prove us as believers. Little by little, God is using trials. He's using tests to build our faith in Him. Little by little, He's using these things to reveal what's in our hearts unto us. To reveal the areas that need working on. Little by little, the Lord is removing the dross, isn't He, from our lives. So that we might be purified. We might come forth as pure gold. You know, his testing of each of us is tailor-made too, isn't it? You know, the testing I go through is not the same as what you go through. God's testing for each of us is tailor-made. He knows what we need. He knows what we can face. He knows what we can handle. It's unique to each person. But God's proving is always there to reveal our hearts, to strengthen our faith in Him even more. And so we see here that God tempts Abraham. He proves him to reveal his heart, and in particular, to reveal his love and devotion unto the Lord. And that's the second word that we see for the first time here, the word love. Go back there to Genesis 22. Genesis 22, verse 2. It says, And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. And get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. In verse 2, the Lord says to Abraham, he says, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. And we have the word love. Just like the word tempt in verse 1, this is the very first time in the scriptures you see the word love. Isn't that interesting? Genesis 22, the first time we see the word love, this wonderful, glorious word, which you know really becomes a a uh, most important word in the word of God, doesn't it? You know, love. You know, talk about important words in the scriptures. Love is one of them, isn't it? And it's here that it's appeared. It appears for the very first time. It's used for the first time, and it's speaking about Abraham's love for his son. You know, in the word of God, the first usage of words or or concepts is of great importance. Because it always sets the pattern for how uh, that word is going to be used from then on. The primary usage of it, how it should be understood. Now, for instance, the concept of death. It first appears in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. Just turn over there. Genesis 2, verse 17. It says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. This is the first time we see death in the Word of God mentioned. And death here is talking about separation. Genesis 2.17 is talking about separation from God. The point is, it it sets the foundation that death in the Scriptures is always talking about separation. Death never talks about annihilation. It never talks about destruction, an end. Death is always talking about separation. And this first use in Genesis 2 makes it clear. 
It sets the foundation. And, and the point is, the same is true here with the word love. It sets the foundation for how this word is to be understood, how this concept is, is to be understood throughout the rest of the word of God. It's important, and so we can't just ignore it. We can't just go over it. And to be honest, I'd never seen it before. This is the first time the word love is used in the scriptures. And so with this in mind, let's take note of the fact here of how this word is used. This word love, for the very first time in scriptures, is not used to speak about a husband's love for his wife. It's not used to speak about a mother's love for her children. It's not used to speak about brotherly love. It's not used even to speak about our love for God. The very first time we read this word, it's speaking about a father's love for his son. Isn't that amazing? I hope you're already seeing where I'm going with this. It's speaking about the father's love for his son. Thy son whom thou lovest. And more than that, it's used in connection with a father who loves his son, who is being asked to sacrifice his son as you know, his only beloved son because of his love for God, to give up that son that he loves. Morris writes this, the deep love of a father for his son, sorry, for his only son, yet a father who is willing to slay him is thus inferred to be representative of the most complete and meaningful concept of the very word love itself. See, this sets the foundation. This is, <clears throat> you're looking for it, love, this is it. The father's love for his son and he's willing to sacrifice his son. Immediately here we realize that with Abraham and Isaac, what's God doing? God is giving us here a wonderful, glorious picture of God the Father and God the Son. That's what God's doing here. This whole event is really about God giving us this picture of his love for the Son. The relationship of love that exists between the Godhead. The first mention of love in the Old Testament calls our attention to the love that exists in heaven between the Holy Trinity, and in particular between the Father and the Son. And this is a love relationship that has existed long before the world ever existed, long before creation. Now our Lord Jesus referred to this primeval heavenly love in John 17. Let's turn over there, John 17. John 17, verse 24. It says, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Christ speaks about the fact that the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world. This heavenly love is the foundation of all love, isn't it? It is the foundation of all love. And it's pictured for us here in Abraham's love for his son Isaac. You know, we cannot help but stop, well, at least I was stopped in my tracks here as I studied this week, stop and be amazed at the wisdom of our God. God in his divine planning, in his divine structuring of the word of God, the scriptures made sure that this was the very first mention of love. This is not just a coincidence. This didn't just happen by accident. 
This is not just chance. This is the divine planning of our God. As he began to give man his revelation. God knew the whole revelation, didn't he? He knew what he was going to do. And God made sure that this is the very first time love is mentioned in the scriptures. Because you see, this whole event here in Genesis 22 was by God's divine planning to reveal unto us a wonderful, glorious type of His love for the Son, of what Christ would do for us on the cross. It's a wonderful, glorious type. Morris writes this, the first mention of love in the Old Testament is the record of of the love of an earthly father for his only son. A love which was to suffer the most intense anguish of soul because he would have to offer up that beloved son as a burnt offering. This, however, is recognized as a type of God the Father sacrificing his only begotten and much beloved son. You see, God made sure this is the first event where we see love because it's a picture of his love. It's a picture of him. His love for the Son presents to us a type. And of course, that type is then fulfilled where? In the New Testament. And it's thrilling, therefore, that when you turn over to the New Testament, you know what the very first occurrence of the word love in the New Testament is? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. So the first occurrence of love in the Old Testament is a father's love for his son, being asked to sacrifice him, give him up, The first occurrence of love in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. Matthew 3, verse 17, it says, And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Isn't that amazing? First mention of love in the Old Testament is a father's love for his son, a picture of God's love for the son. The first mention in the New Testament of love is God declaring from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But not only that, that's amazing enough. But not only that, when you turn over to Mark's gospel, the first usage of the word love in Mark chapter 1 verse 11. Mark 1 verse 11. It says, and there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So the New Testament, the first mention in Matthew is, This is my beloved Son. In Mark, the first mention is, This is my beloved Son. You know what the first mention in Luke is? The exact same thing, Luke chapter 3, verse 22. Luke chapter 3. Verse 22 says, And the Holy Ghost descended in bodily shape like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. Isn't that amazing? All three of the synoptic gospels, that's what they're called, Matthew, Mark, Luke, all three of them begin, the very first time you see the word love, it's God the Father expressing his love for the Son. You know, one commentator wrote this. He said, thus three times over, as it were, as we enter into the New Testament to learn of the love of God in its fullness, we are introduced to it by the great voice from heaven acclaiming Jesus as his beloved son. If Abraham loved his son, how much greater is God's love for his son? That's the wonderful thing here. 
I don't know about you, but I got excited reading and studying all this this week. The Old Testament starts with this wonderful picture. The New Testament starts with the fulfillment of this picture. But what about John's gospel, you may ask? And this is where we're silenced in awe. Because the very first mention of love in John's gospel is John chapter 3 and verse 16. Let's turn over there. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Isn't that amazing? Completes the whole picture, doesn't it? Three times over we see God declare his love for the Son. And then in John, he starts out by declaring his love for who? For us. That he loved us so much that he was willing to give up his beloved son so we might be saved. You know, this is a wonderful, marvelous, glorious truth that's beyond our understanding, isn't it? How could God love a sinner like me? How could God love us? We don't deserve God's love. We cannot comprehend this. We cannot understand this. That God would give up His Son, that His love from eternity past, He'd give Him to die upon the cross for our sins. All we can do is believe and rejoice and give thanks in this greatest demonstration of love the world has ever seen. Go to 1 John 4 with me. 1 John 4. First John 4, verse 9. It says, In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him, here in His love, not that we love God, but he, that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. This is the greatest demonstration of love, isn't it? God's love towards us. So much so that he gave up his son. And beloved, it's this great, wonderful, amazing love that God is revealing to us here in Genesis 22. In type with his servant Abraham. You see, the point is God had a greater purpose to it all, didn't he? Abraham didn't know why this was taking place. Abraham had no idea why God was asking him to do this. It seemed strange. It seemed out of character. But God knew exactly what he was doing. God had a purpose. God had a plan. You see, God was using it initially to test, to prove his servant Abraham, to reveal Abraham's love, to reveal Abraham's devotion to the Lord, to reveal that he did love God more than anything else, even his own son. But God's greater purpose was to provide us with this wonderful picture of his love for the Son. And how because of his great love for us, he would give up his Son as a sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, let's rejoice this morning in this wonderful, glorious picture of God's great love for us. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. And Lord, we stand amazed at your love for us. That Lord, you would love us so much that you give up your son to provide a way of salvation for us. Lord, we, we thank you. And we stand amazed, Lord, at your, your wisdom and your structuring of the scriptures. 
And Lord, in this first mention of love, a picture of what you would do. Lord, may you help us to ponder and, and rejoice in these truths this morning. And Lord, as we come back in the next service to consider the rest of this, this event, may you speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.